My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I'm glad you're here. I'll add my welcome to, to Drew's welcome and Chad's and, and Steve's, and uh, we don't think you're here by accident in any way. And so I trust you'll run right into what the Lord has for you uh, this morning. And on those black books, we it's an honor for us to, to share with you, uh, pray with you, pray for you as you share those prayer requests, and we do that every week. And so, um, in fact, we look forward to the, to the email we'll get tomorrow uh, with all those prayer requests. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We've been walking through uh, this little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, one chapter at a time, and we are on chapter 3 um, this week. And so, uh, we'll, we'll get into that in just a second. Um, Warren Wearsby, an old uh, preacher from the 20th century, which sounds weird to say, like that was a long time ago. It doesn't really feel like it was long ago, I guess depending on when you were born. He said this though, he said, prayer is not something that I do. Prayer is something that I am. It's great line. I was so challenged by it this week. It's like, man, I really, really want that to be true about me. He goes on. He says, for the Christian, praying should be like breathing. Just as breathing is the response of physical life to the presence of air, so prayer should be the response of spiritual life to the presence of of God. It's great understanding about prayer. Prayer is not something I do. Prayer is something I am. I'm a a prayer. There's a story, um, the story of a, uh, there was a brother of of a seminary student, and he came to the seminary to visit his brother, and he was unsure where he was supposed to go, and so he turned to the first person that passed by him and asked, you know, is this Davidson Hall? And on hearing the man being described later, he goes to his brother and says, how did you find him? Well, I asked this guy he was coming. And he describes him. And the seminary student asked his brother, he said, did you realize that you were talking to the most famous uh, theologian in America right now? I mean, you were, you were talking to the guy, everybody on this campus wants to talk to. And the brother, he couldn't believe it. And he'd had an opportunity to ask any question. And he asked only where a building was. And unfortunately, that's kind of how a lot of us pray. We talk to God and we ask for such little things that are seemingly insignificant. And so the question is, well, what's, what's significant? What should we pray? Well, the first answer to that is, and hear me, anything and everything. In one sense, there's no wrong answer to that. Whatever you pray, it's great. The Lord wants to hear that. I mean, you are invited into the throne room of God to pray. I mean, you're, you're ushered in, and the Bible tells us that, that the Father who's seated on the throne invites you in. And his son Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne and he's making intercession for you. And that's my 
It's my boy. That's my girl. That, yes, we'll listen. And the Spirit of God that indwells you is, is praying with you and for you. And there's this sense in which in anything and everything we take to the throne of God. The entire Godhead has our attention. And then the second answer to that, what is significant? What should we pray? Well, the passage this morning is going to help us kind of expand our understanding of prayer. It'll help us if we let it, if we'll listen to it, it'll help us to grow in prayer. We want that, right? We want to grow in prayer. I want to grow in prayer. So at the end of this chapter, let me show you something real quick. The end of the chapter, verses 11 through 13. If you've got your Bibles open, you can see it. I'll have it on the screen in a little while. But the last three verses of this chapter, Paul, he's going to pray for the church in Thessalonica. And just before that, he's going to say, listen, I, I give thanks for you and I pray for you night and day. And so really the last five verses of these 13 verses are all uh, talking about prayer and uh, talking about how Paul prays and then what he prays. And what leads to the prayer, as far as the text goes, is, is Paul pouring his heart out to the church and it's really quite something. Paul's affection is on full display, and he's not holding back. And one of the things that Paul's going to pray for is that he's going to pray that the Lord would make you increase and abound. Increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. But what Paul's praying for them, he is also demonstrating to them. He's demonstrating what it looks like, this love for one another to increase and to abound. And, and this is going to help us. How, how do we pray as we grow in our Christian life, as we grow in our prayer life? What it looks like. The word increase means to, to be more, to become great, to grow. The word abound, it means um, more than enough, a surplus or, or overflowing. He wants, them, he wants them to grow and grow and become more and so much more that it's more than enough and that it's overflowing in love. And so, so, in some ways, this is a, a prayer chapter. It's also the love chapter. This love and prayer are going to go hand in hand. It's not so much love explained like in 1 Corinthians 13, but it's love demonstrated. And a love that is prayed for. And a prayer that comes from love. So, so listen to the passage with me. I'm going to read it. It's, uh, it's the shortest chapter in uh, this letter, and it's uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 1, and here's what he writes. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, 
And he's talking about this missionary team that, that introduced the letter, Timothy and Silvanus, who's Silas, and, um, and uh, so Paul and Silas and Timothy. And we couldn't bear it any longer. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For we were with you, uh, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know, for this reason. When I could bear it no longer, I, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason's brother, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith now. And here's the prayer. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Good, would you bow with me? Father, help us to hear these words this morning and to be challenged and encouraged Father, above all, draw us to your Son, Jesus. This morning, maybe, maybe some will bow their heads and close their eyes and come to you in prayer, even though it's been a long time. Father, they know your, your welcoming smile as they do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first couple of verses, I want you to see this. Um, Paul has this intense longing to be with the Thessalonians. Um, he, he says, uh, verse 1, we could uh, bear it no longer. And then he says, we were, so we were willing to do this. We were, we were willing to send Timothy, we, you know, this, this guy who is um, kind of the A player on our team, we were willing to send him. And then he says the same thing in verse 5, uh, we, we could, I could bear it no longer, so I sent Timothy. In Acts 17, it tells the story about all this. Paul's just come from Philippi in Acts 16. He goes to Thessalonica, he gets run out on a rail, then he goes to Berea, he gets run out of there, and then Paul, he's going to go to Athens by himself, while Timothy's going to go to Thessalonica. And then in 18, 
chapter 18 in Acts, they're going to rendezvous back in Corinth. And the bottom line is that Paul's going to find himself alone for a good while. And alone in a difficult place. And it would have been better for him from a ministry strategy standpoint to have kept Timothy with him. Timothy was his support, his encouragement, a fellow worker. And yet Paul says, I I cared about you so much, I longed to be with you so much, and I couldn't be with you, but I could send Timothy to you. And so he did. So you see, by all accounts, Paul, he's a professional minister, right? I mean, he's a professional ministry. I mean, he has a calling. But we'd say in our day and age, you know, he has a job. Well, of course he does. We'd all say that. But these statements, I want you to see these statements that are personal. This is real life. Paul had already said, we looked at it last week. First, I shared the gospel with you, but I shared the gospel and I shared my life with you. I didn't just share the gospel, I shared my whole life with you. These believers are not just his job. I mean, they're not his job at all. They're his friends. They're more than friends. They're brothers and sisters. They're his soul. They are a part of him. This isn't something he clocks in and clocks out of. It's, it's the heartbeat of his life. And I say that. Some of you are like, oh, it's great. I don't have anybody like that in my life. But I don't want anybody like that in my life. It's too complicated, too messy, takes up too much time. I have Netflix to watch or whatever. John Piper wrote a book a couple of years ago, and he was writing it to pastors. And and we, as a pastoral staff, we've read it a couple of times throughout the years. Every time we read it, it's always so convicting. The title of the book is called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. In fact, he did this whole conference on it for like three days, and he just yelled at pastors for three days. He says in the, um, uh, the, the preface of the book, this is what he says. He says, the aim of this book, and you got to, if you know anything about John Piper, I mean, you just got to hear the intensity, all right? Well, he's probably getting red faced as he's yelling this. He says, the aim of this book is to spread a radical pastoral passion for the supremacy and centrality of the crucified and risen God-man Jesus Christ in every sphere of life and ministry and culture. Increasingly, a ministry under the banner of Christ's supremacy will be offensive to the impulses of professional clergy who like to be quoted respectably by the local newspaper. The title of this book is meant to shake us loose from the pressure to fit into the cultural expectations of professionalism. It's meant to sound alarm against the pride of station and against the expectation of parody and pay and against the borrowing of paradigms from the professional world. Oh, for radically, biblically saturated, God-centered, Christ-exalting, self-sacrificing, mission-mobilizing, soul-saving, cultural-conforming pastors. And let the chips fall where they may. 
Palm branches one day, persecution the next. And it's a and he spends these 11 chapters pleading for the church to embrace what, what Paul is modeling for us here. Our relationships with each other aren't just clinical. You know, we don't just do our time with each other. But we'd love each other. We'd, we'd feel the heartbeat of what it is to love one another. Well, the next thing to, to notice is Paul's longing to be with them gave way to him seeking their best above his own. He was seeking their best more than he was seeking his best. And, that, and that's why he sent Timothy, and that's how he describes Timothy. Timothy's important. It's easy to make the case, like I said, that Timothy, you know, could have stayed with him, that that would have been better from a ministry strategy standpoint. Paul wanted to go. He's hindered by Satan. We looked at that last week. We'll do a little this week. But Paul's presence there, it would have been disruptive and it only been a couple of weeks or months since he was run out of there on a rail, and so he sent Timothy. And he sent Timothy to do two things. He says, to establish and exhort you in your faith. And these were, I mean, we got to get our mind around this. These were the youngest of believers. I mean, Paul had only been there a little while. He'd given the gospel. And, and, and some people believed, and then they told their friends, and they came, and they believed. And, and then all of a sudden, Paul's gone. I mean, they hadn't even gone to church long enough to attend, a, you know, a Discover Thessalonica Bible church lunch. It was all new to them. It was brand new. I mean, they believed, they were saved, and, and now these realities, they were new creations, they had the indwelling Holy Spirit, they were reconciled with God, they had the forgiveness of sins, but they hardly knew any of this. And it's crazy to think about. I mean, if you grew up somewhere other than Texas or, or other than the South, maybe you can relate to that. You know, you came to Christ and everything was, was brand new. But in the Bible Belt, I mean, it's cultural. I mean, there are people that grow up in the Bible Belt that are not believers and don't want to be believers that know more about Christianity in some ways than these Thessalonians would have. And the purpose of sending Timothy was to establish and exhort you in your faith. Timothy was to do what Paul wanted to do himself, but he couldn't. And so Paul, he wanted the Thessalonians to continue steadfast in the conflict or the affliction of which Paul says we're destined for. And he was concerned that the trials that come with suffering would reveal or, or uncover a superficiality of their faith, and, and their labor would be in vain. T to establish means to, to strengthen. Paul prays in the prayer later on in the chapter, he prays that they, they would be strengthened, that their faith and love would lead to holiness. They'd 
They'd be made strong. And then, and then he says to exhort them, which means encouragement. So, so to strengthen their faith, to, to what he'll say, supply what's lacking, to fill in the gaps, to, to, to help teach them and train them so that they understand what it is that Christ has done for them and all the ramifications that that is. So, so he's there to disciple them, to strengthen them. That's what it means. And then to exhort them to, to, means encouragement. In verse 7, the same word is translated comfort. And the word is paraklesia, when Jesus talks to the disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, ministry of the Holy Spirit. His ministry is described as a paraclete, an encourager, a comforter. Because believers need to be grounded, grounded in faith, grounded in the the trust, the belief you have in Jesus. And I think one of the tragedies in, in the evangelical church, maybe just the church in general, is that so many believers are not grounded. They, they haven't learned. They haven't been discipled. Haven't learned to pray. Haven't understood what life with Christ is about. And, and so let me say this morning, maybe that's you. And I want to say that's okay. I mean, gosh, I know that it can feel like, you know, when you come into a church or a church like Bethel, there's so much stuff that you should already know. And then there's this tendency to like fake it to fit in. And I just want to say, you don't have to do that here. Not at all. In fact, I, I, I plead with you. We, we want to plead with you. Don't fake it. We want to help. We, we want to grow together. Nobody here has arrived. None of us. That's what Paul's saying is at the end of this deal, if we ever get there. This is growth for the rest of of your life. In fact, you'll grow all the way until you see Jesus. And then I expect we'll grow for eternity. That's what I expect. So, so you don't have to fake it. You, you don't have to figure it out yourself. And, you know, I don't want you to sit in a place in life where you Google, you know, how do I live out Christianity? You know, it's not a YouTube video you can watch. You know, if you want to change the oil in your, ta- in your car, ooh, watch a YouTube video. But it's not how this works. It's something that we do together with others because we're all growing and we're all learning. In fact, for, for as much as you can't do it without others, hear me, others can't do it without you. Y- you're here because... We need you so that we can grow in the ways God intends us to grow. You're vital to that. That doesn't happen unless we find ourselves getting together and growing together. Well, Paul is concerned, so he, he longs for them. 
He's willing to do what's best for them despite his own needs. And he's concerned with them because these new believers, they're vulnerable. And they're, they're vulnerable to two things. And the first of those things is the affliction or the effects of affliction, the suffering affliction. And the second thing they're vulnerable to is the tempter or Satan, you know, the enemy. And affliction, he says in verse 3, he doesn't want them to be moved. It means doesn't want them to be shaken or, or unsettled because it's dangerous. Affliction leaves us vulnerable to give up the things that we believe or to be shaken from what we believe. And affliction, it describes the, the, what, the suffering or the pressure or the persecution that comes from the outside. It's external. But what Paul's concerned about is what it does internally to us. See, affliction does this. Three times Paul's going to use this word in this chapter. He understands that it's real. He knows firsthand how real affliction, affliction is. And then he tells them, listen, it, it's going to happen. You're destined for it. And it's, it's promised. It's normal Christianity. You, if you're feeling affliction or you're feeling uh, persecuted or there's suffering or, or you're wrestling inside because, because you're finding yourself out of sync with everything, now it, you're, you're not doing something wrong. In fact, you're doing something right. Christianity is hard in that way. Of course it is. In fact, we spent the whole week last week talking about just that. And here he also brings up in verse 5, he says, the tempter, the tempter will tempt you. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the enemy. It, he wants to derail everything in your life. Listen, you got to know this so quick. He hates you. He's your enemy. He will prey on every single thing in your life that he can. Peter talks about him as a, as a lion who prowls around. And he's not dumb. He's wicked smart. Screwtape Letters uh, by C.S. Lewis. If you've never read the Screwtape Letters, it's a great book to read. Um, and and the, the idea of it is, is that uh, Screwtape is um, uh, kind of a senior demon. And he's writing to his nephew, uh, Wormwood, who's a, a demon in training, or he's just been assigned his first case, if you will. And you don't see the letters from Wormwood to Screwtape asking for his advice, but you, the, the collection is these letters from Screwtape back to Wormwood. And everything's upside down in it because the enemy in the Screwtape letters is actually... God. But Lewis kind of delves into it. In chapter 14, he writes to him about how to, how to inflate the pride in a believer. And so Screwtape writes to his nephew Wormwood. He says, you're patient, 
That's what he calls the believers here, patient. Has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the face? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. And if he awakens to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt and so on. Through as many stages as you please. What Paul was worried about. They hadn't been doing Christianity long enough. They hadn't grown in the faith enough to understand the, the way that Satan seeks to work and undermine us. In fact, Lewis said he had to quit writing these letters, it was too dark for him. He couldn't take staring so intently into the face of evil anymore. Well, beginning in verse 6, you see this joy. Paul has this joy, and the joy is at Timothy's report. Timothy brings good news. It's interesting. That word is the same word for gospel. It's the only time it's used this way as a, as a report and so, the report was kind of like gospel to Paul's soul. Their faith was intact, and, and their affection for Paul was still strong. And it's crazy to think Paul's so human, so like us. He really longed for them. He really longed for their affection for him. It's such a great feeling, this reciprocal affection to love and to be loved, to, to know and, and to be known. It happens in the Christian life with other believers like nowhere else, and it should anyways. When we're in our small groups or we're in Bible studies together, you know, we're in settings where we're, you know, in circles, not in rows, and, we, and we're looking at each other and we're hearing from each other and God's Word is open. And every group... It's particularly true of life groups, goes through these stages. They've been long documented, forming and storming, norming, performing. Forming is, you know, when you're getting to know each other and you're still, you know, doing potlucks and, you know, you're finding out about each other and what each other brings and, you know, who, it is, who is it that actually makes stuff and who is it that swings by Brookshire's on the way and, we're forming, we're learning about each other. And then the next phase is storming. This is when our humanity kind of comes out. The control or the competition or the differences or the disappointments and expectations we have. And most groups struggle here. It's very natural, but it, we get there and we struggle and the groups flame out or burnout or people get hurt or they pick up their toys and they go home and you know think I should well I should have known better I never trust those sorry people or whatever we say but if we can make it through that the norming phase comes we begin to accept each other and this is where love is born compassion affection 
And then we move into performing, which means we're serving each other. We're actually doing this. The one another's of the New Testament begin to be lived out. And we begin to look outside the group. And we want to bring people in. We want to reach out. I mean, too many, too many folks I know get, get lost in the storming part. Don't push through to the love and affection and compassion and, and real Christianity on the other side of that. Well, look, look at verse 8. He, he says, I can't believe he says this. He, so, he hears the report. It's such good news. And he says, for now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. I, I can live now. I can breathe again. I felt like I was dying, but now to hear this report, I'm, I'm living. In other words, his whole spiritual joy and his happiness, it's linked with the experience of the Thessalonian church. Paul, he'd been there just a few weeks. But it meant everything to him. Nine and ten, Paul says, my joy, the joy is greater than what he can give thanks for. It's kind of amazing. There was more joy that he felt than he could possibly give thanks for. The joy we, we felt, he says, was greater than the thanksgiving we could give. This is, and this is what Paul's going to pray, that they'd increase, they'd abound. They would grow in this kind of love. And this love would grow beyond. It would be overflowing. Well, look at verse 11. We're at Paul's prayer. He says, when you... He says, now may our God and Father himself. When you come across a prayer in one of Paul's letters, mark it. Make note of it. That the prayers, they're not necessarily a formula for us. But they're a pattern, a template. They help us with how to pray. So what's Paul praying for? Well, one, he saying, listen, if we're really committed to the Lord, we really want to be committed to the Lord. If we're really letting the Holy Spirit rule supremely in our hearts and our lives, there should be evidence of the love of the Spirit. The compassion of the Spirit toward, toward other believers, as well as those who, who don't know the Lord. And the challenge of the passage is to let the Spirit of God this morning transform our hearts and make our hearts tender and compassionate and overflowing with compassion. L listen, if, if Christianity, or, or throughout the history of Christianity, one of the defining marks is that our very lives, that the way in which we live, it is countercultural. Listen, the carelessness and difference, the cancel culture, we live in a culture that is defined by being offended and on a quest for self-satisfying justice against everyone and everything that offends us. Paul's praying that we'd have others in mind. We'd have a mind that's alert and a heart that's sensitive and eyes that are tuned to see the spiritual needs of those around us. 
it's as countercultural as it can get today. Are you really concerned about others? Do you have a concern for others? I mean, a real concern. And if you don't, say, you know what? I don't. I mean, don't say it out loud. Nobody will ask you to lunch. But, um, but it's, it's okay to say it. And then say, Lord, I, I don't. I, I don't know what's happened to me. But I, I want that, or at least I want to want that. And that's the first place to start this morning. Lord, would you, would you help me to love those around me? And to get over all my hang-ups about it being messy or the ways people disappoint me. Or I, I want this. I want to grow in my faith. I want to grow in my, in my prayer life. I, I, want to, I want to move from praying about parking spaces to spiritual and eternal things on behalf of brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when I grow into that, when, when my prayer life grows into this, Lord, I trust I'm going to know you in ways I've never known you before. I'm going to have this joy, this sort of overflowing joy that I don't even have words for thanksgiving for. That my life, the, the quality of my life as a believer in this world increases. I begin to taste the eternity to come. I begin to taste that right now. You won't do it without growing in your prayer life. You won't do it without loving others and caring and having great compassion. So maybe this morning you just need to pray for that. Look at verse 13 real quick. Coming of the Lord's mentioned every chapter. I tell you, every chapter ends with it. First chapter is waiting for the Lord's return. The second chapter, you know, the presence of Jesus will be there. Here in this third chapter, once again, it's the coming of the Lord. And he talks about being established, that our hearts will be established. You establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God. Blameless in holiness. See, this is part of what Paul needed to supply that was lacking. See, without that, you think, well, that means I've got to be sinlessly perfect. And nowhere in the Bible does perfect mean sinlessly perfect. It means that you've grown to completion, that you have everything that you need. It's like my daughter moved into a new house this weekend. She moved into a house that when she went and got the keys, the house was empty. I mean, you could live in the house, but she didn't have anything. So she spent all weekend. She'd been moving couches in and chairs in and lamps in and a bed to sleep in and put food in the refrigerator. All the things she needs. This is what he's talking about. To, to supply, to, to, to fill in all the gaps so that you now are growing, you're growing, you're, as Hebrews 12 says, you're, you're striving and you're struggling, and you're growing. And then as John says, when you see him, you'll be like him because you see him. 
and you realize that what you have been since you were saved, positionally, blameless and perfect, covered in the righteousness of Jesus, that at the coming of the Lord Jesus, you will be like him. All that you are positionally, you will experience in reality. And that you be growing towards that all your days. Blameless in holiness, unblameable. And that you'd realize that about yourself. And you'd grow in this understanding. You would continue to become who you already are. That's what Paul's praying for. That's what he's praying for them. That's what he prays for himself. So what's the content of your prayer life? How do your prayers go? Are you praying about those kinds of things? Are you looking around the room this morning and thinking, man, you know, can't wait to get in my car this morning. I need to pray for them. I don't know what's going on, but the Spirit's put them on my heart. So I'm going to sit in my car for the next five minutes and I'm just going to pray for them. I don't even know all the details, but I'm just going to pray. Pray the Lord would draw them so near this morning. That there's people in your work or your neighborhood or your apartment complex or in your school. And you begin praying for others. Watching your love grow, your affection grow. Your spiritual life deepen. Your joy overflowing. This will happen. This is what Paul is talking about. It's what he's praying for. If you would, would you bow with me and let's, let's pray. Father, we want these things. We, we want to come to you as you're seated on your throne, sovereign over everything. And we trust you. That's what we want. We trust you. And in the places we don't trust you, we want to trust you. So help us. There's so many things that come to our mind to pray about. We don't even know if we have the time to do it. But Father, we want to want to pray in the areas of growth, spiritual growth and experience and that the Holy Spirit would move us and make us more sensitive and more loving, more compassionate because we need your help to be those things. Father, knit our hearts together We read Paul's words and his affection for the Thessalonians, and we think, oh man, Lord, I come up so short of that kind of language and desire for other people. But Father, give that to us. We ask for it. That's so what Paul prays at the end, that our love may 
may grow and it may increase and it may abound for one another. We want that this morning. So, Father, the first place for us to start is, is to pray for it. And so I pray this morning, Father, there are folks here that it's been a long time since they bowed their head to you, but Father, in your grace, with arms wide open, you welcome us to the throne room. And we find ourselves coming away from that time wondering why it has been so long since we stayed away. And so, Father, do that in us this morning, we pray. We pray this by... In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.